Well, good morning, High Point. So good to be with you today. I'm glad that you're here in person. We're thankful for those who have joined us online as well. And you know, I, I just want to say it's become more and more obvious to me that celebrity status and stardom is a greatly desired thing in our culture. You got all these TV shows like American Idol and other shows like that that, that are designed to make one lucky, own, unknown contestant a shining star. Some winners of those shows have gone on to be superstars, some you don't even hear about anymore. And though I am certain that there are great benefits and perks to becoming a, a, a celebrity and a superstar, you've also gotta understand that there's gotta be challenges that come along with that. And one of those challenges is that people are always watching them. The public wants to know what these stars do throughout their day, what they eat, what they wear, where they vacation, who they hang out with. And so through Twitter and through their Instagram accounts, many celebrities keep their loyal followers informed about the mundane daily events of their lives. I checked out who were the, uh, through Twitter and Instagram, who the celebrities with the greatest followings are, and this is what I came up with. There are 114 million people who follow Justin Bieber. 108 million people follow Katy Perry. And 103 million people follow Rihanna. It's hard to imagine that people are, are so deeply interested in what these people think about and what they do throughout their day. Because honestly, when I take a look at what they contribute to our society, I mostly come up with not a whole lot. I mean, they can sing, they can dance, they, they can look beautiful, but what they do has absolutely no bearing on my life whatsoever. And listen, I, I, I don't envy these stars. At the same time, I do not begrudge them for their moment in the spotlight. And honestly, I don't even waste much time thinking about them. But there is one thing that their star status does make me think about, and it is this. From God's point of view, who are the real stars? Who are the heavenly celebrities that shine like stars? After all, it was Jesus himself who said in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Today, as we continue in our series called Live Strong, which is our study in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul has something to say about this star quality. He tells us that as Christ followers, we may become blameless and pure children of God without fault, who live in a warped and a, and a crooked generation. And by doing so, we will shine among others like stars in the sky. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the kind of star quality that God is looking for. So and understand, as, as followers of Jesus, we too are stars and we are to shine brightly every single day. Not necessarily through our Twitter or our Instagram accounts, though you can witness through that, but through everyday living. 
People should observe us. And through observing us, they should learn how to live their lives well. Our star quality should be expressed throughout our day. And we should shine in a way that makes those who don't know Christ want to come to meet him and import, most importantly, want to come to know him. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but even though we aren't celebrities, as Christians, people are watching us. Don't kid yourself. You are being watched every day by people you work with, by family members, by people you associate with throughout the day. That is why it is important for us to shine brightly because people want to see if we are the real deal or not. Jesus said, let your life so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, here in Philippians, the Apostle Paul tells the church in Philippi, and he is telling us at high point uh, that we are like stars in the sky. And so this morning, we are going to use Paul's words, and we're going to talk a little bit about Christians who do, in fact, shine like stars. And I want to start by reading the entire scripture reference this morning, and then we're going to break it down as, we, as our discussion moves forward. Today, we'll be reading from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 18. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be up on the screen behind me. I'll be reading from the New International Version this morning. Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Paul writes, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. As we break down this scripture this morning, we are going to discuss five important commitments that Christians who shine like stars in the sky make. Let's go back to verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Within that scripture is the first commitment Christians who shine like stars make, and it is this, I will do my part. Notice Paul's first ex exhortation there. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Many people have confused that statement because they read it as if it says, my salvation is based upon my works. Of course, that's impossible. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You cannot work your way into salvation. It is a gift of God. So what does this verse mean? It 
mean? I, I think the answer is in the very next verse, verse 13, where Paul reminds us, for it is God who works in you. You see, salvation always starts with God. First, he works in us to save us, and then we are to work out what God works in. I don't know if that made any sense to you, so let me try this again. Let me try to explain what I'm trying to say. In the first century, the term used there, work out, was used when talking about silver mining. Workers would enter into the mine and they would bring out the silver that was already there. Well, in the same way, we are to work out the implications of our salvation in every area of life. Salvation starts when, Jesus, when you accept Jesus, but it does not end there. True salvation affects every aspect of your daily life. And I'm going to say something this morning that few pastors would have the courage of saying to you for their fear of their popularity being diminished among you. But, but here it is. If salvation makes no difference in the way that you and I live our lives, what is the point of being saved? If it doesn't change the way you talk, the way you think, the way that you act, the way that you evaluate your own life's decisions, then what is the point of being saved at all? I'm just gonna say it like it is. A salvation that doesn't change you is hardly worth having. So what does it mean to work out your salvation? Well, for one thing, it radically changes the way that you view God's will. Here's a great question that every one of us should ask of ourselves. Am I willing to do God's will with no strings attached? The reason that's a good question is because many times we put conditions on our obedience to God. We're willing to obey God if God will promise us safety and health. If he will guarantee us a good job and a happy family. If he, if he promises us to have no problems with our children and a good long life and a good long retirement. But the God of the Bible doesn't make such deals with us. The call of Christ, ladies and gentlemen, has always been the same and it will never change. And it is this, come follow me. That's what he says. Come follow me. We are called to follow Christ and leave the other details of our life into his capable hands. And yet many of us put conditions on our obedience to God. So let me ask you, are you willing to do God's will with no strings attached? Are you willing to go boldly where he leads you even when you haven't received all the answers that you are convinced that you need to overcome the fears and the doubts that come with that? Are you willing to do your part in pursuing God's directed changes for your life and start living your life the way God wants you to? This is what is meant by continuing to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the fear and trembling part in that verse, it means reverence for God. It means that this is very serious business for those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. It means that we've got to do our part in the equation of working out our salvation. You've gotta be engaged in the process. Let's move on to verse 13. For it is God who works in you 
to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Within that scripture comes the second commitment Christians make who, likes, who shine like stars. I will depend on God. This provides the perfect balance. We do our part because God always does his part first. God always makes the first move. Salvation is God's work from the first to the last. It's perfectly fine for you to say, I found Jesus, so long as you remember that Jesus found you first. This verse tells us that God gives both the will and the ability to do what he commands. First, he changes our want to, but then he provides us the power to obey. God intends to give us everything that we need in every single situation to do his will. He will enable us by his spirit so that we will both desire to do his will, but furthermore, we will in fact do his will. I find that very, very encouraging because we have this tendency as human beings to dwell on the things that we lack. And when we do that, we conclude that our problems are greater than our potential. But you have to understand something. Those constraints of time and energy and money and people and material resources are given to us by God. Over and over, he puts us in positions where we are unable to do anything without his help. Why does he do that? He does that so that we will call upon his name, that we will call upon him to strengthen us. Simply put, what God demands, ladies and gentlemen, he supplies. And this truth becomes clear through the heart of the gospel message itself. When God demanded full payment for sin, he supplied his son whose death fully paid the debt that all of us owed. But that truth doesn't, doesn't just apply only to our past experience of forgiveness. It describes how, how God daily works with his children on a day-by-day -day basis. What we need, he supplies. He gives us the inner strength to do his will. And then he makes a way so that we can in fact do it. Yes, we must do our part, but we could never do our part unless God did his part first. And his part involves giving us the desire and then whatever else we need to fulfill his promises and purposes. So our goal each day should be to go forth within the energy that we have to do God's will, knowing that we already have whatever we need to do his will that day. And if we need anything else along the way, guess what? He'll supply it. Let's move on to verse 14. Do everything without arguing, grumbling or arguing. This is the third commitment that Christians who shine like stars make. I will not complain. I will not complain. I will not complain. I will not complain. Say it to yourself. In the Greek, the word arguing might be better translated as murmuring. It has the idea of muttering under your breath. 
I don't know if you've ever considered this or not, but you understand that complaining is really an attack on God's sovereignty? Every time you or I complain about our circumstances, we are in essence saying, if I were God, I would do things differently. When we complain, we have forgotten the first rule of spiritual life that I've told you a thousand times, he's God and you're not. That's what God's sovereignty is. And what's interesting, it has become very American thing, it's becoming a very American thing to do. We are the best complainers in the entire world. We complain over the smallest of things where, where, when there are people who are out there in the world who don't even know where their next morsel of food is going to come from. They go to bed at night and wonder if they are going to be slain while they sleep. Just talk to a foreign missionary one day because they will tell you of how people in third world countries never complain. When you think about it, it's really a matter of focus, isn't it? What we look at determines what we see. So if we focus on our problems, they fill our minds with, with nothing else. We can't think of anything else. No wonder we complain and mutter and murmur under our breath. But when, when we focus on the Lord, when we focus on his goodness, we will start to see our problems in the light of eternity. God never works on my timetable. I've told you that many times before. God has always been a last minute God in my, my life. Whenever I've had a need or when I was hanging on by a thread or whenever I needed an answer, he's never been easy in giving it to me early. He's always given me, to me in the final two minutes of the final quarter of the game. But once we grasp that realization that God doesn't work on my timetable, he works on his own and he works in his own way and his ways are so much greater than anything we could have ever dreamt up in that situation, we will not complain against the Lord. On to verse 15 and 16. It says, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without a fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Here's the fourth commitment that Christians who shine like stars make. I will live differently so I can make a difference. With this commitment, we, we come to the heart of the text because Paul uses three words to describe here how we should live. First, he uses the word blameless which means living above reproach, so that no serious accusation against you can stick. Number two, he uses the word pure, meaning high quality. It's like when you melt gold down, all the impurities, the drosses all burn away. In other words, you, what you see is what you get. And three, he uses the word faultless, meaning fit to be offered to God. It's like a lamb being sacrificed without, without spot and without blemish. We will make an impact on our world by living in a way that visibly, noticeably, measurably, and obviously is different from the people around us. We are to be different in order to make a difference. Our values set us apart from this crazy culture in which we live. So why is it important 
that we be straight arrows when it comes to our lifestyle, when it comes to the way that we live. Because as the scripture says, we live in a warped and crooked generation. One translation says a crooked and perverse generation. The word crooked comes from the Greek word scolios. It's where we get the English word scoliosis, which is a curvature of the spine. The word perverted used here is much stronger. In essence, it means crooked by choice. You see, some people are messed up because they don't know any better, while others live the way they do by choice. And they do so knowing full well that their choices go against the commandments found in God's word. And as history has continued to roll on, we see greater levels of warp living than ever before and a total disregard for God's commandments. And by, by the way, his commandments are for our good because he created us. He knows how human beings are wired and God understands that, that warped or crooked living creates warped and crooked people who are susceptible to even more aberrant behaviors. Think about this, let's illustrate our lives as a, as a straight stick. How do you show someone that they are using a crooked stick? You lay it down next to, to each other. But here's the deal. We can argue about straight versus crooked until the cows come home. And it's not gonna make a bit of difference in the world. You can say your stick is crooked, all that you want, but the response that's gonna come back from an unredeemed individual is no, it isn't. The point is, folks, we don't get anywhere with those kind of debates, we just don't. So we must simply and quietly resolve to live out our life of faith in the most beautiful way possible, as well as love those who do not agree with us. It wasn't too long ago that there was an ongoing debate about same-sex marriage. Both sides of the issue were very vocal. The loudest voice against same-sex marriage was the church, who was standing upon a biblical truth. We understand that marriage is a covenant created by God and a sacred union between a man and a woman. But the other side of the debate found absolutely no value or truth in the scriptures that we stand by. They believe that personal freedoms and, and desires trumped whatever God had spoken to us regarding marriage. So in spite of thousands of years of human tradition and human history, and while standing most importantly against basic biblical truth, our nation decided to embark upon a great social experiment. And sadly, we've turned the covenant of marriage, which was created by God to be between one man and one woman into something that God never intended it to be. And as we continue to talk about marriage, social trends also show us that among heterosexual couples, fewer are choosing not to get married in this culture today. Instead, they choose to live together and have children together like married couples do, but for some reason, they are just not willing to make the, the commitment to be fully united in marriage. They find no value in the covenant of marriage that God created. And the reason that I mention these things is to make a point. 
regarding the message, the, the scripture today. And here it is, the best apologetic for a God-ordained marriage covenant to a world that does not embrace the truth of God's word is a truly biblical marriage lived out within the power of the Holy Spirit. Whenever you attend a Christian wedding ceremony, there's usually some comment about how biblical marriage mirrors the relationship between Christ and his church. So a healthy Christian marriage is a powerful witness, folks, to a very confused world. One basic principle of of a Christian marriage is to understand that marriage is a window in time through which others can, can catch a glimpse of eternity. A truly Christian marriage is a powerful witness. So we must show this world what a marriage designed by God looks like. Can you see the importance in that? And by the way, it's never going to be perfect. Why do I say that? Because marriage involves the union of two imperfect people. But by God's grace, a Christian marriage can be blameless and it can be pure. A marriage like that is a thing of beauty. And it will be a bright shining light among the prevailing cultural ruins. So so we must simply and we must quietly resolve to live out our faith in the most beautiful way possible. And I don't even know if I want to say quietly. It depends on the circumstance. Sometimes the best example is to quietly do it because people are watching you. Sometimes you have to be more vocal about it. Either way, we have to do this. And we do this by exhibiting commitment and by living out in the blessings that come from living for Christ in a home where the husband and the wife deeply love one another, where they would lay down their lives for each other, where they would serve each other, where they would stay together through difficulties, through the thick and thin and not automatically go and file for divorce and where the kids are raised to know and to love Jesus, and it is a home that is marked by joy and marked by freedom and commitment and, yes, holiness. Can you see how that the change that we seek within our culture has to begin with us? This is where it all starts. It starts with us. That kind of a marriage that I'm talking about will change people's thinking, not all at once, and not all by ourselves, and not without the work of the Holy Spirit, and not without spiritual warfare going on, and and, and a great turning to God happening, but it can happen. And this is the only way it will happen. So again, the change that we seek has to start with us. The world can certainly ignore our arguments all that they want, but it cannot ignore a godly example, because the world has no answer whatsoever for a life or a marriage or a family that is truly transformed by the Spirit of God. So what happens when we live our life like that? The world notices. They they lay out a template of what they see in the world and they lay out a template of what they see in you and there is a difference. We shine like stars as, as we hold forth the word of God and people will see the way they live and they will notice the difference. The light of Christ will be seen from us. It will flow from us. And when they ask us why we live the way that we do, we can share the word of life that we live by with them. Let's move on to verse 16 through 18. 
And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But if, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the final commitment that Christians who shine like stars make. I will live for others. And Paul explains it in two key phrases. First, he says he looks forward to boasting about the Philippians when Christ returns. You see, Paul envisions a day when he will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account of his ministry. And on that day, he wants to boast about what the Philippians had done in their own generation. And that leads me to another question. What will you boast about on the day when you stand before the Lord? Will it be your career? Will it be your stock portfolio? Will it be your beautiful home? Will it be how important people, how many important people you know? Do you really think any of that is gonna oppress our Lord? It's not. On that day, the only thing that is going to matter is the impact that you've had on other people's lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. Everything else, folks, is gonna fade away. Secondly, Paul mentions being poured out like a drink offering on their behalf. This refers to the Old Testament practice of pouring wine on top of an animal sacrifice. When they did that, the heat of the fire immediately vaporizes the wine and turns it into this beautiful, sweet-smelling aroma. He is saying, Paul in essence is saying, even if I end up losing my life for you, it won't matter to me so long as I know you continue to live for Christ. And with that statement, we come to the bottom line of Christian service. I wonder how many of us can truly say that it doesn't matter whether we live or die so long as those people who we know follow the Lord. I read of a pastor who used to minister in the nation of Nigeria. He told of a missionary graveyard there located at a church camp and conference center that contained about 60 graves of men and women who had made the ultimate sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Half or more of them are graves of missionary children, most of them who died within the first few days or weeks of life. He wrote that in the early part of the 20th century, the life expectancy of a missionary in Africa was only about eight years. And he said he saw a gravestone with a man's name and dates of 1919 to 1953, and the marker read this, placed in loving memory by his wife and children. And underneath those two words were, in quote, abundantly satisfied. The inscription on one young girl's grave read, she is with her best friend and Lord Jesus. And that that, I believe that that missionary graveyard sends a clear message that God's grace is free, Yes, we know that, but it is never cheap. It is not cheap at all. The missionaries and their children who are buried there bear testimony to the high cost of the Great Commission. Reaching our world for Jesus has never been easy, and Jesus knew after he left that it would not be. That's why he said in John 16:33, you will have suffering in this world. It's always been true from the very first day. First, they killed the prophets. 
Then they killed the apostles all, one by one, except for John, who died at Patmos while he was in exile. And wherever the church has gone, the cost of a new field has always been paid in blood. It was centuries ago that Tertullian declared, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. One of the markers on that missionary cemetery read this way, we plant this seed in the hope that it will someday bear a harvest of souls for the kingdom. Folks, the world has its stars, but God has his own. So what can we say about those people who were buried in that missionary cemetery in Nigeria? My mind ran to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 and 38, where it tells about those who had suffered for their faith. It says, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And then you have that wonderful phrase in the next verse, the first part of verse 38. The world was not worthy of them. Does that seem like too much? Does that seem as if that is too high of a price for us to pay? Before you answer, you remember what God did when he brought his son into this world. Think of what it cost him to provide salvation for the human race, a a human race that had literally turned against him. So I will say it again this morning, you are the light of the world. You shine like stars in this world. I pray that you can see the uttermost importance of both of those statements this morning. And today, like at no other time in my life, I believe an increased persecution of Christianity is going to come in America. I believe it's going to become a reality. And I do not say that to scare you. I say that to prepare you. But I also say that to tell you that that's exactly what we need. Because if history has shown us anything, it is through difficulty and through persecution that the church grew and really became something. It is through difficulty, it is through persecution that Christians truly shine like stars in the sky. And so my question for all of us this morning is, are we only fair-weathered Christians who serve the Lord as, as long as things are good? Or are we stand up for the truth, even if it costs us something, kind of Christians? In order for us to shine like stars to a very dull and dark and dying world, we must be deeply committed followers of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can no longer afford superficiality. We must send our roots deep into the ground and be like, by tr- be like trees that are planted by streams of living water, as the scripture tells us. I was praying to God the other day, driving to this church, when he brought to my mind a question. David, as you pray for High Point Assembly and ask me for help in leading these people, what is your goal? What is your purpose? 
What would make you feel like that you succeeded as the pastor of High Point Assembly? And as I thought about that question, this is my answer. Lord, I want more than anything else for the people of High Point Assembly to be deeply in love with you and deeply devoted to you. And it would, it would be seen in the way that, that they live their lives, the way that they share their faith, uh, in the way that they love others, in the way that they serve, in the way that they give, in the way that they treat strangers. Lord, I want people to say of us, you can tell that those people from High Point Assembly are Christians because of the way they simply do life day in and day out. And as I thought about my response, it became very clear to me that that's exactly what is summed up in this scripture passage that I've shared with you this morning. To truly be stars that shine, we must live differently than the world lives. And that means we've got to be honest people. That means that if we give our word to someone, we don't back out, we don't renege. This will show us, uh, this will show the world that we do things that the rest of the world doesn't. We are true to our word. We must be a truthful people. We can't afford to diminish what we know to be true. We can't compromise on the word of God because culture says we need to. No, culture needs to compromise and come in line with the word of God. We must always tell the truth, even when it hurts, even when it might alienate us from people who don't agree with us. And we must speak the truth in love. And most importantly, we must live in the truth. We must also love with a supernatural kind of love. We must respond to situations, not just with justice, but we must always let love prevail. Real agape love is what this world is so sadly missing. And if we don't offer it, folks, nobody's going to. We must serve those who cannot reciprocate. We must never ever expect something in return. We serve because it's what God requires of us. Remember that he came to serve and not to be served. That must become our identity. We must be a forgiving people. How can we speak of God's forgiveness when we ourselves are unable to forgive and hold on to grudges? When we get hurt by someone's actions and continue to carry that hurt along with us to even to the point where we want to start hurting them back, that's not Christ-likeness. You, and you can't condone your unforgiveness as some kind of a spiritual prerogative. That's not biblical. It's not biblical at all. You have no reason to hold back your forgiveness to anyone. And let me just say this. If you are harboring unforgiveness, it will destroy you. It's not going to destroy the people that, that you're holding a grudge against. It destroys you. They don't even know you're carrying that with you. Do you get it? It's eating you up inside. It will destroy you in your testimony, and it will keep you in a spiritual holding pattern. You're not going to grow. You're just not going to grow. In fact, you'll go backwards when that becomes a part of your heart. Forgiveness is the greatest gift that we can give to anyone, and we must exhibit that in our daily life. We must be a joyful people. We live in a sad and cynical world and cynicism drives about everything we see and hear. So if the joy of the Lord is our strength, is it too much for us to let it show? A joyful heart stimulates joy in other people. We must show strength 
even in times of difficulty. One of the trademarks of Jesus was his strength. It was often a silent strength, but it was strength nonetheless. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit who provides us with with supernatural strength. So let's not be afraid to let it show. Apostle Paul says, so you want to shine? Then let your commitment keeping, your your truth telling, your work ethic, your vocabulary, your sexual purity, your willingness to serve and forgive others. Let all that stuff shine brightly because that's what will really awaken people to the reality of a life that has been changed by God. Let people see that you are ignited about truth and reconciliation and and injustice and fairness and righteousness and all those other real issues going on in our world because when they see that you are ignited by those kinds of causes, they will know that you are not self-centered and a self-serving person. They'll know that there's a power that is at work in your life that is not your own. They will see Christ in you through that. The world has its stars, and God has his as well. And my earnest prayer this morning is, God, help us to shine like stars so that others will see Jesus in us. Scott, will you guys come forward? Help me to close this down. As your pastor, I want so much for the people to look at this church and realize that we are the real deal. And when I say church, of course, that means us, those of us who make up this body. My desire is that we would all literally shine like stars in the sky. You see, like me, you may not have star quality that the world is looking for, but you do possess a star quality that God is looking for. And if you remember anything that I've said to you this morning, let it be this, stars shine. Is it your desire to shine? If it truly is, I'd like to ask you to stand to your feet because we're gonna sing an old hymn that we sang the chorus on earlier in our worship set. It's a song called, I Surrender All. This hymn contains words that are truly the beginning of us being able to, to shine. The lyrics of the song say, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence I will daily live. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee my blessed savior, I surrender all. I mentioned earlier that we often put conditions on our obedience to God. And the song says, no, we don't. I surrender all to you, Lord. No longer am I going to hold back a little piece of me from you. I give you my life. I give you my abilities. I give you my talents. I give you my passions. I give you my skills. Use it for your glory. Because that's the only way that you can shine like a star in this dark world. God, please reduce me and increase you in me. I don't know about you, but when it is all said and done, I want to be remembered for the things that I accomplished for the kingdom of God and not for my own personal kingdom. I wanted to be seen lived out in my daily life. I I wanted to be seen by a sacrificial love for my wife and my daughter and showing encouragement and love to other people. I want to be remembered as a guy who spoke life 
into situations and not death that everybody else spews forth. I want to be remembered as someone who, who's brought joy wherever I go. So as we sing this song together, I want you to allow it to minister to you. Listen to the words and let those words become real to you in your heart. And while we're singing this song, if you feel so led to come down to this altar, if you have if you want to spend some time with the Lord, this altar, as you know, is always open. If you want to come down in response to this message today, feel free to do so. Maybe you want to come to this altar as a way of, of exhibiting a recommitment to the Lord of your faith this morning or a sign of surrender by saying, God, I really do surrender all to you this morning. I'm not going to hold back anymore. Maybe it's a public statement that you're making that says, God, I want to shine. I'm coming forward to seek your face to have the strength and the power to do that. Or maybe you want to come forward and ask God to, to fill you afresh with his spirit. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and God's goodness and grace, he's giving you but one more opportunity to make that decision. It all begins by submitting your life to the Lord. The Bible says in order to be saved, you must believe and confess you must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, is the only way to God the Father. And by the blood that he shed on that cross, he atoned, he covered, he wiped away your sin. But only when you ask him, ask him to forgive you of your sin. That's the confession part. You talk to him in prayer and you say that. So while we're singing this song, if you want to pray out to God for your salvation, he will hear that cry at any time. Just call out the name of Jesus, tell him you believe, and ask him to become your Lord today. As you listen to the words of this song, you too can come down to this altar if you want to and receive salvation. The best gift that you will ever receive, salvation in Christ Jesus.
continue to pray at the altar. They can stay here as long as you would like. I'd like you to bow your heads with me in prayer. Precious Father, we, we surrender all to you today. We realize that in order for us to shine brightly like stars in the sky, that we have to give it all to you, allow you to do a transforming work within us, which means we live a different kind of way, a way that the world doesn't always get or understand, but a way that is written in your word. And it is that that will change people's minds and hearts. It is that that will change communities. It's that which will change states, and it is that which will change a nation. Father, I pray that there's always been a remnant, a remnant of people who love you completely. And they've submitted their lives to you completely and totally. And I pray, Father, that that remnant would no longer be a remnant, but we would be a army, a vital army in this nation that could change the tide, the turning of things. We know, God, your plan is in motion, it's in action. We know how it's all going to end, but that doesn't mean that we give up our leading of people to Christ, that we don't give up shining bright lights in the darkness that we see engulfing us all around. So Father, give us strength through your spirit to live a life that shines brightly, the kind of life that others would see and know that there is something different, the kind of life that people would come up and say, what is it about you that is different? I've been observing you for years or weeks or months, and we can share with them your goodness your love in our heart, what you have done for us, and tell them how you can also do it for them. Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for my church family. Thank you for those who have given their heart to you today, for those who have maybe recommitted their life to you today and have said, God, I'm taking off all barriers. I'm giving it all to you. And I ask that through your spirit, you would strengthen them as they walk out of this place today as a new creation, that they would be reminded that you provide all that we need throughout the day, even during difficulties. Let us not dwell upon what we don't have, but let's focus on what you have given us and what you have given us and will continue to give us is all that we need in order to live a life of victory for Christ Jesus. As we leave this place, Holy Spirit, go with us guide our, our steps, the places we go, the things we talk about, the conversations that we have. Let them be conversations that build people up and not tear them down and let the love of Christ shine through us in such a bright way that people would know that we are Christians by our love. Keep us safe from accidents, from sickness and disease that might prevent us from gathering together again next week and worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And as we leave, Father, let us leave in love. I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.